The world faces some pretty big issues. There's climate change, race relations, pandemics. Oh, and some rather large political divides. Trust among people is at the lowest level we've ever seen. But let's have ourselves a pocket-sized pep talk because I have an authority on trust with us today, and he's here to help. A pocket-sized pep talk podcast that can help energize your business and your life with a quick, inspiring message. Now, here's your host, Rob Jollis. My guest today, Daryl Stickle, is one of the world's leading experts on trust with over 20 years experience. He's established himself as a global leader for governments and businesses on practical approaches to building trust while working for McKinsey and Company in their Toronto office as well as advising the Canadian military on trust building in Afghanistan. He recently completed his book, Building Trust, Exceptional Leadership in an Uncertain World. We're glad to have you on the show, Daryl. Welcome aboard. Thanks, Rob. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, you bet. Now, let's get to work. You know, I um, I build processes. I'm a process guy. And uh, right. a, a, a quick... <laughs> you're the guest, but a quick story from the host. I, I spent... Uh, a lot of time building a Xerox sales model within a war room with a sales team. And we, it had uh, 21 steps to it, everything. And the only thing we didn't process was trust because we thought, yeah, everybody knows how to build trust. And boy, were we wrong. Uh, you know, it, you don't have trust. The rest of the process becomes anemic. So I want to turn it over to you. Big question right out of the gate. How do we build trust? And if, and can we process it? But I'll, I'll let you do Part A first. How do you do it? Yeah. Yeah. So trust is a combination of uncertainty and vulnerability. And so when we're deciding whether to trust someone, we ask ourselves two fundamental questions. The first is, how likely am I to be harmed, which is perceived uncertainty? And the second question is, if I'm harmed, how bad is it going to hurt, which is perceived vulnerability? First one's uncertainty. Second one's vulnerability. It's uncertainty times vulnerability gives us a level of perceived risk. And we each have a threshold of risk that we're comfortable with. And so if our perception of the risk goes beyond that threshold, we don't trust. And if it's beneath it, then we do. And so building trust actually becomes fairly simple. It's where does uncertainty come from? And how do I take steps to reduce that? And where does vulnerability come from for the other person? And how do I take steps to manage that for them? Wow. Uh, now, can you, do you, how do you go into a conversation equipped with some of that information? Or are you just working on the spot? Well, so I, I have 10 levers that I think about, and four of those are in uncertainty. Um, a couple of them are in vulnerability. And, you know, we, we think about the perceived outcomes. Uh, so you and I are having an exchange right now, and uh, all your guests are listening, and they're going to have a different narrative about whether it was a good podcast or not. Um, we all have a different perception. We can have exactly the same experience, but have different versions of what just happened. And so those things combine to give us an experience with somebody else. Um, we can be intentional about how we approach somebody else. So when you and I were first starting, I asked the question, what's good guest look like? And you know, you were able to give me a sense of, uh, you know, you wanted a conversation with someone. So now I know that I try to facilitate a conversation with you. That means that I'm trying to do what's in your best interest, mm -hmm. which is something called benevolence. And that's right. one of the levers we can pull, right? So um, 
a lot of times when I'm talking to people about how do I build trust quickly, it's it's a combination of a little bit of vulnerability on my part combined with a bit of benevolence. So showing that I actually care about what, what good looks like for you, how to help you be successful. And so we start by trying to figure out where's the uncertainty coming from for somebody else. And partly that uncertainty comes from me as an individual, and partly it comes from the setting that we're embedded in, right? The context, the rules of the game. And so you were getting a sense for me early on about, have you done these before? Have you done podcasts before? Different people have different rules. Here's what my take is. Here's what my perception is. Here's, here's the rules on my podcast. Mm -hmm. And so that makes it easier for me to understand how you're going to behave. So you're reducing my uncertainty. And then you give me a sense of you. And if I listen to your podcast, I get a sense of the things that matter to you. If I read your books, I get a sense of what matters to you. And as we have this conversation, I start to get a deeper sense of, you know, who you are and what you're about. It makes it easier for me to trust you and open up and be more vulnerable. And, you know, uh, I'll, I'll tell you, folks, um, that's exactly what he did coming out of the gate. And I can tell you, you know, I'm coming up on uh, my 200th podcast. No one's ever asked me that question. I'm usually um, working very hard at sort of calming my guests down. And yet, um, you practice what you preach. That's exactly what you did. And it was, uh, it actually made me feel much more comfortable with you. Uh, and I yeah. was sort of telling myself, gee, I wish I had asked that question. Uh, but um, that's really interesting. You know, yeah, I'm sort of leaning back thinking about that for a moment because I'm much more into as a writer and as a trainer into these repeatable, predictable steps of a process, not a straitjacket, but right. kind of like guideposts, you know what I mean? Of, but for instance, keeping our questions open, letting the other person talk, um, right. you know, staying away from problems early. You know, we, I led with that, that lead of, you know, the political divide. Uh, mm -hmm. How many times do we want to go in there and create trust? And we go in like a bulldozer telling people what they, what they should believe that doesn't create trust. So it doesn't, so let's do that. Let's stay there for a second. That's an interesting thing because I've been asked that by my publisher, but I, I want your right. view. So we've got this uh, political divide. Okay. Yes. And, and, and um, I, I'd like to think in the U S here, we're the poster child of that political divide, but we're not the only ones. Uh, it is, you know, now let's take what you're talking about and apply that to, to, to Thanksgiving in the U S okay. Coming up, Next week, yeah. we're going to be family yeah. conversations at the table. Uh, how do we apply some of what you were saying to create trust in a politically divided family? Right. So a big part of this question is one of empathy, right? So you and I are sitting across the table from each other, and I assume, Rob, that you have good intentions. And I start with a positive story about you. And then when you start to speak, I try to frame what you're saying into that positive narrative, into that positive story. Um, you know, my son, so I'm in, I'm in Canada. I'm off the West coast of Canada. My son's going to school in Missouri and Canada's a little more left of center. Well, more towards center than the U S is this, the U S is slightly right. And Missouri is slightly right uh, within the U.S. Mm -hmm. 
and so there's sort of a political couple of political steps for him there he's going to a baptist school uh we're not baptist but he got a baseball scholarship and and you know he's happy as could be and he said dad when people are you know telling me that i'm going to hell or or talking to me about religion or politics or whatever i start with the narrative wow this person really cares about me and so if we can start from a place of empathy and curiosity and if we can start talking about what our story is and what their story is trying to understand what their story is it actually allows us to have a conversation rather than beating each other over the head with our beliefs and our values and our views and you know i said that that uh, trust is a combination of uncertainty and vulnerability well uncertainty comes from two places it comes from us as individuals and it comes from the context and when we're looking at individuals, you know, most of the trust research focuses on these three elements within us as individuals. They're benevolence, integrity, and ability. And benevolence is that belief that you've got my best interest at heart. Integrity is do my actions actually align with the values that I express? And ability is do I have the competence to do what I say I'm going to do? And so those are all different levers that we can pull to try to get clarity and to try to adopt someone else's perspective. You know, when I've been thrown, so I, I wrote my doctoral thesis on building trust in hostile environments. And, you know, maybe the title was, was uh, a bit ambitious since I now get thrown into the settings that are hostile. Um, and a lot of times what I end up doing is I'll sit down with a couple of people who are having a hard time getting along. And I'll, I'll talk to them individually first. I'll say, What's your story of what's gone on? What do you think is going on in this relationship? What's happened? And so I'll get their story from each of them. And then I bring them together and I'll say to them, okay, now you tell me what you think the other person's story is. And getting them into that space where they're actually trying to understand the other person's perspective, trying to articulate it to them in a way that's not offensive, that the other person can agree with, it actually brings them greater understanding. And so uh, that's part of the recipe that I use in these settings. And you know what? We have so much more in common than we do different. Um, you know, we care about a lot of the same things. Sometimes it's just a matter of how we get there yeah. that differs. Yeah. And well, so yeah. go ahead, Rob. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say you had me at motive, you know, uh, we forget that we were sitting across from somebody and right now we're, you know, we're not talking about bumping into somebody on the street. We're talking about people that we know where these divides are. Right. And, um, you know, I, I, as a trainer, when I teach trainers and there are some people there, they're nervous about people who are going to come in and might disrupt their room. You know, one of the first things they tell them is, you know, people don't wake up thinking I'm going to ruin that, that room today. I, that's not their intention. Something's missing in the conversation. Sometimes they don't know what's in it for them to learn whatever it is, or sometimes they don't know what the big picture is, or maybe you look like somebody that, and they don't even, they're not even, pro but the motive is not to destroy you. And you've really helped me already because I'm sitting here thinking, because I've got a couple relatives that will be yeah. at Thanksgiving and I love them. And yet, we, you know, it's like this that shall not be talked about. Okay. And just conditioning my mind to remind myself that their motive is not to disrupt or to intimidate uh 
they they have a set of beliefs and um and i think i've lost my empathy for that and i really appreciate right. what you just put on the table there because again I, i'm thinking they're coming in well i'll be ready for them that's that's not really what's going on and i and and i love i've done it before as a as a coach having somebody argue the other person's point of view argues probably a bad word but but basically take that point of view and sell yeah. it to me and uh, you better be listening or you're going to fall on your face trying. But if you're listening, it does open it up a little bit. Really important stuff. I love that. Mm. Well, and, you know, as you've as you've articulated, it hits closer to home when there's things that we really care about. Yeah. Right. People we care about uh, issues that we care about. And for me, you know, I talked about uncertainty times vulnerability gives us a level of perceived risk early in relationships. We've got a high level of uncertainty which means we can only tolerate a small range of vulnerability right. to still fit beneath that threshold. But as those relationships get deeper, that uncertainty starts to go down and our range of vulnerability we could tolerate starts to increase. Right. Right. But with people we really care about, we're really vulnerable. Yeah. And yeah. so uncertainty is really hard for us. And we, you know, think about this with kids, right? Our kids mean more to us than anything. We're never more vulnerable than when they're involved. And so our tolerance for uncertainty is incredibly small. And we struggle with that. And we try to control those other people so that we're less uncertain. And, you know, I, I've, I've been blessed. I've got two sons who are fantastic, Thomas and Alexander. And I was able to explain to them, hey, you know, I'm never more vulnerable than when it comes to you guys. It means I can't handle a lot of uncertainty. My mind goes to terrible places. And so they started to become involved in helping reduce that uncertainty for me saying, okay, so that's a different story than you're trying to control me. That's, you know, you love me, you care about me, you're worried about me. Let me give you more information. Let me ask you what would be helpful. Let me be involved in that conversation. Right. Um, yeah. Wow. Um, all right, let me let me steer you a little bit. I'm sure. going to steer you to, uh, uh, I, and I hope you're okay with this, but I'm going to steer you to, I have a lot of, of, of job seekers that I work with. So a lot right. of times they're walking in on an interview. They've got a hiring manager in front of them. They're loaded down with star stories and elevator pitches, which drives me nuts, by the way, um, yep. because there's too much talking going on, not enough asking questions, listening. But walk into that scenario for me. There's only so much control they'll have. But if uh, but if we've got some job seekers listening right now and they're trying to create trust, what would you suggest right. for them? God, Rob, like get out of my head. Um, <laughs> because that's hiring and promotions are both a trust decision. Yeah. Right. And so organizations invest time and energy, and they've they've got this person that's going to join their workforce that that they're going to be putting up with uh, every day. And so part of their hiring decision is, can this person really do the job? Of course. But we tend to pull that lever, that ability lever, a lot. So here's my resume. Here's my elevator pitch. Here's you know me, 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 me. And I've actually coached some folks who've, who've been applying for really senior roles. And they've had a profound success by doing what I did at the start of this podcast, by saying, you know, what are some of the biggest challenges this organization faces and how can I be helpful? What is the overlap between your role and my role and how can I help you be successful if I join this organization? What's a good teammate look like? 
those kinds of questions where you're showing some benevolence, where you're showing, hey, I'm not just about myself, I'm about helping the team be successful, uh, provoke a very different kind of conversation. And it gets the person thinking, hey, it wouldn't suck for this person to be in the office every day for me to run into them every day. You know, being able to talk about your values in a way that says, um, I'm pretty consistent with those. How would this organization align with the values that I have? Or how does this role fit with what I think is important or what I'm passionate about? So that we're showing some integrity, right? And so we can start to pull those benevolence, integrity, and ability levers. We can start to think about the context and, and ask clarifying questions and give clarifying information. You know, so that people have an easier time predicting how we're going to engage and, and behave. And that's that's for getting the job. If you're trying to get promoted, then it's what does good look like in the next role? And how do I start demonstrating that? How do I have the conversation with the people in positions of authority saying, how can I make it easier for you to recommend me for a promotion? What does good look like in the next role? What would I need to do to get there? So they, they start to see you in that role and start to think about that as, you know, how do how is this person reducing my uncertainty so that I can actually trust them with a bigger role within the organization? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, you're, um, you're, you're camping out in my head too. And, and I'd, I'd like you <laughs> out of there because um, I just ran a, a meeting this morning uh, with a group of people and, uh, it, we, we that's one of the conversations we were having which is you're, you're obsessing on your skills and you wouldn't be invited into the interview if you're there wasn't a close enough match on your skills they're listening right. to hear if you're a team player like you said you know are you going to be are you going to be an asset to the team or are you going to be a, a pain in the neck on this team and how right. do we answer that i mean we, we, we and one of the ways we do it that you're outlining is and is we we ask some of those questions and you know we have a, a rule and thumb of a, a rule of thumb in sales that says the more the other person talks the more they like the person that they're talking to which yeah. is logical daryl but it's not instinctive we go in and we want to in sales we feature dump i want to tell you six things about my product clearly one or two of them are going to catch your ear when in right. fact what we should be doing is asking enough questions to begin to gain that trust. And when it's time for me to say, well, I've got a solution for you. I'm not guessing anymore. I get to use right. two words, which I love, which are, you said, you know, right. you said earlier that bang, and you had mentioned such and such. Well, that's why. So um, I, it's funny that we're lining up, you know, the sales trainer, uh, and and you are lining up very much in what we're trying to do. But what I like about our conversation with you is we struggle to process trust. We struggle right. because everyone goes, well, what are the four steps of it? It's like, well, <laughs> not everything has, you know, three repeatable and predictable steps. Sounds like you've got almost some, you know, just some strategic moves. Are there 10 of them? Did I hear that right? There's 10 levers. Okay. And, you know, in the in the book, I try to go through and really clearly identify here's here's the model, here's the levers, here's how to pull them. Because yeah. I gotta tell you, Rob, my my frustration, I I I agree with you that we have all those big hairy problems that you were talking about at the start of the podcast. Yeah. And to solve them, we need collective collaborative action. 
And with trust levels at the lowest level we've ever seen, we actually need to be smarter about this. We need to be more intentional. And so, you know, the one of the first clients I worked with was a mutual fund company. I was working with their sales department. Which which one and, was it? Are, are you okay talking about the, the company? I work with tons of mutual fund companies, so I'm just okay, curious. So it was a it was a Canadian company. Okay, uh, they were called they were called Aim Trimark okay. at the time. Yeah. I think they still exist. Okay. Um, this was in 2003. And they brought me in to talk about sustainable competitive advantage. And one of the guys who was head of strategy was a friend of mine. We'd worked together at McKinsey. He asked me to just come talk to them. And I said, you know, you're a mutual fund company. To have sustainable competitive advantage, you'd have to do things that I can't copy. You, know, you have to do something better than everyone else that I can't copy. You don't do anything I can't copy. You know, because of regulations, you have to be transparent. Right. I buy one share of every fund you have. I know how they're all built. I can sell what you sell at a discount because I don't have to pay the fund advisor. And the CEO looked like I'd hit him in the forehead with a sledgehammer. And I said, the only thing you can do is build deep long-term relationships with your customers. And they said, that's it. That's our strategy. And so right. I spent the next 18 months turning my doctoral thesis into a workshop. Wow. And I trained everybody, you know, and I did problem solving and, and consulting and uh, the model developed and evolved. And at the end of 18 months, they hired a professional survey firm and found out the trust was the primary driver of the sales decision, that they were dramatically more trusted than any of their competitors. And they generated 75 cents out of every new dollar that came into the industry for the next two years. Mm. And they were part of Invesco. And Invesco started sending teams from all over the world to figure out what these folks were doing because they were dominating. Right. And a lot of it involved saying to them, look, you sell to financial advisors. And rather than flogging your product and trying to get from 10% of their book to 11% of their book, how about you double the size of their book? Because 10% of twice as much is twice as much. And I said, so change your focus from trying to flog product to trying to turn your clients into monsters. And it worked ridiculously well. And so um, they started, instead of doing what they had traditionally done, which is, hey, I'll take you to dinner. I'll I'll buy you golf balls. I'll send you to a golf tournament. I'll, you know, Lure seats I'll, at the Knicks game, as I call it. That's sort of their model. <laughs> yeah. Right. Value add, instead we're going to give you tickets. Yep. Yeah. Instead, it became, how do I help you grow your business? I've been talking to this guy about trust. Let me talk to you about how to build trust with your clients. Mm -hmm. And when it comes time for us to talk about product, I'm going to give you a list of five products. One of them is going to be mine, but I'm going to give you a list. And if, if somebody else's is better than mine, I'm going to tell you that. Right. And so they they performed incredibly well. And then the three top guys that I'd worked with all got cherry picked at other places. The new guy came in, said, oh, I'd like to get credit for all this. And he got rid of everybody, including me, went back to the old method and boom, they went right back to being mediocre. Right. Wow. You know, um, just so you know, I've worked with Invesco and uh, I actually worked okay. with a similar situation in a sense in 93. Uh, I was a Xerox sales trainer. I was actually managing the sales trainers, but still training for Xerox. And one of the companies we owned was Van Camp and Merritt, which has changed its name a bunch of times, including Invesco got a piece of them at one point. But uh, right. they were 
really trying to create something that they could offer to their customers from the training world, something like what you offer as a way of building value. In other words, let's replace, you know, a ski trip, you know, because you sold a lot of product with, how about I help you become more successful in your business? Could we call that value added for a while? And, uh, but that's what introduced me to the industry. And so I know exactly where you're coming from. You look, the the book is called Building Trust, Exceptional Leadership in an Uncertain World. I'm I'm sure I can get that at Amazon or any online bookstore. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. Barnes and Noble, anywhere online. Perfect. It comes in hardcover, ebook or audio. Ah, who did the audio? You know, I can't remember his name, but he was really good. Terry, somebody or other. I thought you were lining up a joke there going, his name is a Daryl, Daryl something or other. Okay. No, no, somebody else read it. (laughs) I had somebody else do it. I'm legally blind. Are you? Yeah. I could have gotten my guide dog Drake to do it, but uh, he's, his pronunciations are a little rough. Okay. Uh, All right. Well, let's stay on this for a little bit more. Uh, Let's go to Afghanistan for a minute, because when I was looking at your bio, I went, Wow. That's some serious stuff. So you're taking this principle and now you're in, you're working with the Canadian government to try yeah. and build trust with, I'm assuming the Afghani people. Yeah. Yeah. With the locals in Afghanistan and uh, a friend of mine came to me, uh, major John Leahy. Uh, he's now Lieutenant Colonel John Leahy. Um, and he said, you know, we've been in Afghanistan for years and there's, you know, we're supposedly trying to rebuild the country. There's no running water or reliable electricity in the capital. Um, and we're realizing that no one's investing in anything. This is what happens when trust goes away. No one's investing in anything that has a future payoff, things like education or yeah. infrastructure or anything like that. And he said, we need to start building pockets of safety where there will be room for economic growth. For the country to start getting back on its feet and he said we think we're probably too late in afghanistan um but that's where we want to practice this because there's going to be another version of it somewhere else eventually and so yeah i started working with them and it's the place where i started to realize you know overwhelmingly the the literature the popular press and some of these other things focuses on individual levels um Unfortunately, if you're in Afghanistan and you're standing around with a machine gun, you look a lot like the other people standing around with a machine gun. It's hard to differentiate yourself. Yeah. And and so we start to talk about context. And, you know, I think of context as the rules of the game. And I came to realize that context is actually primary early in the relationship. You know, when we go to a doctor, you know, you don't know much about them. They say, take off your clothes. And you do. And, you know, Rob, I've tried that in other places. It doesn't work. And if we take that setting, that doctor's office, and we just shift it to being a bathroom at a gas station, and somebody walks in pulling on a pair of latex gloves and says, hey, take off your clothes, it goes from credible to creepy, right, in a heartbeat. And so understanding the context and what the rules of the game were like in Afghanistan, you know, we're used to formal structures processes and they're more informal because they don't have a reliable central government 
they don't have rules and laws that are applied evenly all over the world or all over their region. Um, so you need to understand what rules they're playing by to build a stronger relationship first. And then they start to get to know you as a human being. Um, and again, it was, you know, uncertainty and vulnerability. Right. Um, and, you know, this is, I guess, the other, there's a few places where I differ from the other research. Uh, inclusion of vulnerability. So most research treats trust like a dichotomous variable. It's like a light switch, right? It, it's either on or off. And the reality is we trust some people more than others. And so with the inclusion of vulnerability, we can talk about deeper relationships. Well, if we think about the Afghans, they're incredibly vulnerable almost all the time, which means that they can they can tolerate incredibly small ranges of uncertainty or none at all. And so um, if we start to think about how they're vulnerable and how we can start taking steps to reduce that for them, to make it easier for them to trust, to make it easier for them to actually engage in education. I mean, nobody wanted to become a mechanic because no one, no one could afford to pay a mechanic. Um, and if you did become a mechanic, all of a sudden you've got a useful set of skills for the Taliban. Um, you know, so if we start thinking about environments like that and start thinking about what the context is, what the setting is, that's the first step for us. And a lot of times it's about really including other people in that conversation, which is, you know, we make assumptions. Um, one of the things about Afghanistan was, you know, if you're a farmer in Afghanistan and you want to grow a crop other than poppy, um, say you grow vegetables. Once you've grown your crop of vegetables and there's, you know, irrigation systems that look a lot like infrastructure, so they're under attack. But if if you actually successfully grow a crop of vegetables, you then have to take them to market. And on the way to market, there's five roadblocks. And some of them are manned by militants or rebels, and some of them are uh, manned by the army. Now, in a given week, it's the same people, but they just switch uniforms, right? So some this week I'm in the army, next week I'm a I'm an insurgent the week after I'm back in the army, look at me. But they all require a bribe. And you get to market and the people at market aren't stupid. They know you can't afford to take those things home. So they offer you a fraction of what, what it's worth because you also can't store it anywhere. And so you end up selling this at a discount. And by the way, if you're trying to grow vegetables, you can't get a bank loan. Now, if you're trying to grow poppy, you can get a bank loan. And the people will come to you to pick up the crop. So if you're a farmer, what do you grow? Trying right. to feed your family and trying to survive? You grow poppy. Yeah. And so um, against that backdrop, we tried to build stronger relationships and they succeeded. You know, they they uh, had successes, they had failures. Um, right. It was a real learning experience. And you're right, I've, I've been applying the model all over the place to nonprofits, private sector, public sector, government, um, families right. and learning. You know, the I, I think one of the things that sets me apart is that 20 years ago I wrote my thesis. I've been helping people since then. And that combination of sort of deep theoretical knowledge and practical applied experience is relatively rare. Yeah, I hear you. It's um most of the books that I write, uh, I'm in the field. 
Um, and they're writing yeah. themselves almost. I mean, I'm not, I'm not really, I, obviously I'm sitting down to write, but I'm, I'm in my own Petri dish of, of sorts of people right. and c- scenarios and situations that's populating, um, you know, some of the theories I'm working on that I thought were right until I got into the Petri dish but, and some uh, surprised me. Actually, I, I, I'll bet those are some of the most joyous parts of your writing and your book are the ones that you really didn't see coming that came together once you really opened up that topic and really dove in hard. Uh, you can't, yeah. you can't find it on the surface. You got to go. And, 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 and an author knows that, uh, but it's, I was, I think it's Robert Louis Stevenson, the, some of the greatest event, I'm going to really butcher it, but we'll get close. Some of the greatest adventures that we, we, we have are those that we don't go to seek. And um, he said it much right. better. That's why I'm Robert Jollis, not <laughs> Stevenson. But um, point being that, um, you know, that's the beauty of of your research is that it takes you and keeps testing it and lets you adjust it and tinker with it a little bit. Let me tinker right. one more time and then and then we'll we'll start bringing it home. Uh, sure. Because I, I appreciate the fact that we've gone from a job seeker to Afghanistan. We're moving around and we're still taking the core. It's like a golf swing, the basic principles yeah. of the golf swing, but adjusting it based on shot, you know, angle, et cetera. But some of the principles are still there. Let's move it to a, a sales manager because you mentioned this and it's one of the most basic principles I learned, which was once it's broken, it's really hard to get it back. So we have a sales right. manager. I'm sorry. That's that's the sales head in me. We have a manager, okay, uh, who is uh, maybe learning on the job a little bit. Not not you know, but sadly, most managers don't go to management training. They've moved the widget faster than anybody else. They got put in a management position. Their heart's in the right place, but they have lost the trust of a a, a member of the team, if not the team. Right? Can it be you know fixed? And and if so. Give us two minutes, a minute and a half, 90 seconds on how do you rebuild trust as a manager? So that's a great question. Um, and it, it is part of the approach that I talk about in the book. Um, I actually worked with a with a leader at a company where they, they measured trust levels. And they did this great thing where they said, we're going to measure your trust levels. It's incredibly important. Uh, and if you're not doing well, you're in trouble. You need to fix it. And then when leaders said, well, how do I do that? They said, well, we don't know, but it's really important. You need to fix it. So yeah. this, this leader had a score of 13 out of 100. You know, the, the score went from negative 100 to positive 100. Her score was 13. And it wasn't her fault. She's a brilliant leader. She's a smart lady, really capable and competent. Um, just kind of new. And so... We started with some coaching, talking about here's how trust works, here's how to think about it, here's what's going on in the heads of some of your employees, your direct reports, and then we included the organ the the group that she was leading in the conversation. We said, here's what trust is. So we actually had a shared understanding that trust is a willingness to make yourself vulnerable when you can't completely predict how somebody else is going to behave. And so they kind of went, okay, so now we've all got a shared definition of what trust is. And then I walked them quickly through the model. And so they all had the same vocabulary. I said, you know, one of the levers is benevolence, believing that you've got my best interest at heart. So what could she do to show benevolence to you? What does benevolence look like for you? 
And it allowed them to start having conversations because they had the same vocabulary. And so three months after her initial evaluation, she got evaluated again, and it went from 13 to 80. And she's been at 100 since. Hmm. And so absolutely, we can rebuild trust. Um, a big part of it is, is about having a shared vocabulary or a shared understanding. Um, there are ways we can talk about trust because it feels awkward and uncomfortable. If I said, well, do you trust me, Rob? You're probably going to say, sure, right? Because you don't want to say no, right? Because it feels rude. Right. And it, it may cause a reciprocal reaction. But if you can, if I can say to you, are there things you're not certain about when we're engaging together? You know, do you, do you actually get the sense that I care about what's best for you? Because I do, but I, I don't have a full understanding of it. And this is one of the things that I do in the book and that I do when I coach people. So for example, you know, when we're talking about benevolence, I'll give people a, a script to follow. And some of the folks I've worked with are, are incredibly technically gifted, but struggle with human beings. And they have come back to me and said, it's like you gave me a manual. You know, you gave me a, a formula and now I'm able to actually engage with people. And so if we're going to have the benevolence conversation, I'd say to you, you know, this guy, Daryl, talks about benevolence. He says it's important. It's having someone else's best interest in heart. And I think I do that. But it doesn't always seem to land that way. Have you ever experienced that? And the other person goes, oh, God, yes. You know, I was at Thanksgiving, my uncle trying to explain to him something, and he just got offended and upset. And so then you go, well, have you ever had somebody really have your back? Well, what did they do? What did that look like? How did it feel? And then they start to tell you a story about someone who really came alongside and helped them and, and what they did and how that felt. Now you're getting hints, right? So we're narrowing the funnel. And then you say, well, what if I was trying to be benevolent to you? You know, what, what if, if I was the one trying to pull that lever? What's success look like for you? How do I help you get there? What's, what matters most to you? How do I show you that I'm thinking about that? And now we've made it transparent. We've pulled it out onto the table and I can refer back to that over and over again, right? So you, you said a good guest looks like somebody who we're having a conversation with. I think we're having a great conversation, right? Is that accurate? Well, my side it is. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I love that. You, you know, you've also kind of hit something that we again we're kind of crossing into my world a little bit but when we talk about trust in sales you know one of the one of the phrases i often land on is you let the other person paint the picture we're in such right. a hurry to grab that brush and say this is what it looks like right and when we let the other person paint the picture they own it a little bit more and um, yeah. from a negotiation standpoint i'd prefer them to go first anyway because we might be lined up more than we think and again, I'm, 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 we got to write a book together called you know, The Bulldozer Effect or whatever, where right. you know, I'm not just walking in going, this is what I believe. You should believe it too, right? Nice closed-ended question there. Uh, but I like, there's almost a vulnerability that you're encouraging uh, um, yeah. from the other person. And I'm thinking of myself as a parent and as a manager and how, um, not with a, a child, but with a, as our families evolve, when we're dealing with a teenager or a young yeah. adult, at some point, 
we have to be wrong on something. At some point, we have to show that we're vulnerable too. Now we're talking yeah. about a manager situation. We're not talking about an adolescent. Why wouldn't we look for an opportunity to demonstrate that we're capable of being vulnerable? Uh, yeah. You know, uh, but you know what we're the conversation we're having again, I keep, I keep landing on this phrase. It's logical, but it's not instinctive. And that's why we need books like yours and authors like you who uh, this isn't an opinion. There's a lot of research behind this who um, are validating this a little bit for us. And that's right. because to, to show somebody that you're vulnerable, it makes you vulnerable. <laughs> you know? You're living right. it. So you, you got to trust the process a little bit there. Uh, Absolutely. And this is one of the challenges yeah. we face, Rob, is that, yeah. you know, the the definition of what a good leader looks like is a moving target. Yeah. And as we move into leadership positions, you talked about this great, you know, this great analogy of I'm the best widget maker ever. So now they've made me a manager. Right. And I need to let go of the things that made me good, that allowed me to get here and step in to the things that make me good in this new role. Right. And that means I'm going to screw up. It means I'm going to make mistakes because every time I try something new, I'm not going to be great at it. And yeah. one of the things I wanted my sons to know as they grew up was dad's not perfect. Right. You're going to see dad screw up, but you're also going to see dad respond to that in a way that's thoughtful and positive and acknowledging, hey, I made a mistake there. I didn't handle that the way I would have liked to. Right. All right. So that they learn that I'm human so that they don't fall. So I don't fall off a pedestal when they hit a certain age and realize, well, he's full of crap. He's just human. Like I am. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, I, um, I, I think back and my kids are in their thirties and I think back right. on, you know, some of the best moments I had as a parent. And I can tell you without question, one of the top five moments I had was when I had this moment with, you know, a 13 and a 12 and an eight year old explaining to them that I'm not always right. Um, what yeah. I'd ask for is while I'm not right, just be respectful and give me a little time and I'll get right. there and then demonstrate, come back. Cause we know when we've screwed up as parents, you know, and we're digging yes. into our, uh, come back and demonstrate that apology, that, um, that, that yeah. correction that you need to make. You do that. And you've cemented so much of the future, but without it, and you know, I'm, you know, I was raised by you know, one of the greatest generation, great guy. My right. dad was an amazing guy, wonderful man, terrific. It was a Marine, all that good stuff, but that was not in their playbook to right. show vulnerability and say, I can be wrong. Um, I'm, you know, give me a little time. <laughs> we never yeah. heard that one. So there aren't a whole lot of models out there. I think now we see more and more, but, you and your book are helping us to model that. Uh, the book, Building Trust, Exceptional Leadership in an Uncertain World. If you were on the fence before we started this conversation, you better get off the fence right now uh, because you can see the multiple, multiple applications. I don't believe I've ever gone from a parent to a manager to a sales rep to a job seeker to a conversation in Afghanistan um, and all fitting into the premise of Daryl's vision, your vision of yeah. what creates and makes trust. Uh, just what I was looking for today. Uh, and um, 
Well, I'm, I'm grateful. I really appreciate. How do people get a hold of you, Daryl? They can reach out to me at Daryl at trustunlimited.com uh, or, or look me up on LinkedIn, Daryl Stickle. Um, yeah. If they want to see more, like I've written some articles on parenting and on leadership and those kinds of things, you can find them on my blog section at trustunlimited.com. And, you know, I hope people buy the book, apply the concepts. That's my passion is that yeah. we make the world a better place together. Right. And yeah. 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 Buy the book and write a review on the book. You know, yeah. my, I'm talking to my audience right now. You know how I feel about that. Uh, talk about vulnerable. Um, I, I, I'm going to be I'm plenty vulnerable for the both of us. It means a great deal. Uh, we, 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 it, it changes the Amazon algorithm. It so, right. so don't shy away from it. That's okay. Daryl doesn't want you to say that he walks on water. Daryl just wants you to give him two sentences, say that maybe this book made a difference for you. If you do that, he's grateful. We're all grateful. So want to do yeah. something nice, get, get the book, read the book, apply what you learn in the book. And then say thank you. Um, that's as, as I'm saying yeah. thank you to you today. Uh, that's when you're looking up Daryl. I want to make sure I've got it right because you might get some LinkedIn buddies out of this one. It's D A R R Y L, and the last name is S T I C K E L. Daryl Stickle. That's right. PhD, as I because I looked you up and I just sent you a LinkedIn inv invitation about five minutes before we started. So it's in that's your fantastic. Inbox. <laughs> so I, I know that it's followed that. by a PhD. I saw it. Uh, anyway, right. uh, listen, Daryl, I am really uh, happy that we had this opportunity. Uh, I, the greatest thing about for me as a podcaster is I learn a ton and you taught me plenty. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for the opportunity, Rob. I really appreciate it. You bet. Well, we'll do it again as well as we can next time, everybody. Until then, stay safe. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, please rate and recommend it on iTunes, Outcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also get more information on this show and Rob at Jollis.com. <laughs>